0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we begin a brand new series called Jesus Goes Global Beyond Jerusalem. So let's turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter six to 12 as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled Getting Beyond Jerusalem.
1: Let's begin with a statement that often catches people by surprise. 2,000 years ago, Jesus gave his disciples the following command, Matthew 28, 19 says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now, that's not the surprising thing. Here's the surprise. Since he said that until today, there's not one political nation on earth that has not heard the gospel whether it's Indonesia, Japan, Uzbekistan, or Zambia, every nation on earth has to some extent had some experience of hearing the gospel. So I suppose we might say the world is heard. That's remarkable. And furthermore, all major languages on earth have a Bible, although there still are a significant number of tribal languages that are yet awaiting their first Bible translation. Nonetheless, what has occurred since Jesus uttered those words has been nothing short of staggering. However, it seems to me that the command of Jesus that we make disciples of all nations has as of yet not been obeyed. And that's because the definition we have of a nation was not the definition that was then when the command was given. It's often been pointed out that the word translated as nation in our Bible is the Greek word ethne. Sometimes the word is simply used as a designation for non-Jews or Gentiles, but it often also is used, you know, for individual people groups or what we might think of today as ethnic groups. Well, you might think of Revelation 5-9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." So think of tribal groups, think of identifiable cultural groups, think of how language and culture intersects, and think of Jesus' commands to take his gospel, make disciples of every distinct ethnic group on earth. That's what Jesus desires, and that's what he wants his followers to be doing. Missiologists, that is, those who work at getting some kind of a definition as to the actual task before us, are going to say that a nation as Jesus defined it is a large grouping of individuals who perceive themselves to have a common affinity for one another because of shared language or religion, ethnicity, residence, caste, or class, or any combination of those things. I'm not going to repeat that, but I think if you're going to take Jesus' words seriously, well, we must conclude that Jesus has commanded us that among all the people groups of the world, there should be a church that is a Christ-honoring, Bible-believing church able to reach out in their community among all ethnic groups of the earth. And that's a problem because that would mean that still some Forty percent of the earth's population still live in unreached people groups with very few to no followers of Jesus who bring them the gospel. You see, while the worldwide outreach of the gospel up to now has been breathtaking, there is still so much to be done. And as one missiologist said, it is a great injustice to think that many people groups have no witness of the gospel. And here's what makes it even more maddening. North American Christians love to philosophize about what happens to those who have never heard. There's a smug, self-content philosophizing rather than a call to global missions. Instead of being devastated about the many who are lost and have never heard, and instead of responding with a willingness to pray, to give, to go, and to make whatever sacrifices are required, we philosophize. So try this one on for size. Eighty-seven percent of all Hindus, Muslims, and Buddhists have either a very limited or no contact with a Christian. And that's appalling, and that's unacceptable. Today I'm beginning a new series in the book of Acts, and we'll be studying Acts 6-12. to You know, in the past, I've already done a study of the first five chapters in which we saw how it was that the Church of Jesus Christ was birthed. We went from Pentecost to the challenges the church had in Jerusalem to first get it going and then also to face the pressure of persecution from the Jewish religious leaders, but also as in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, they had to deal with unfaithfulness from within that might destroy the Christian movement. You might remember that when Jesus told the eleven to go out and make disciples of all nations, you might also remember what he told them right before he was taken up into heaven. Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. In essence, Acts 1 through 5 deals with being witnesses to Jesus in Jerusalem. By the time we get to the end of chapter 5, the gospel has not yet gone beyond that city. Judea, that refers to the region around Jerusalem in the south of Israel, Samaria is a far greater challenge for it's made up of people who are only partially Jews or I guess depending on your perspective, you know, maybe not Jews at all. And we also know that there was considerable animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. And there were considerable religious differences between them as well, including the size of the Bible. That's because Samaritans did not believe in any books of the Bible that were not a part of the five books of Moses. And they also argued that Jerusalem was never to be the center of worship. But there were other issues as well. The Samaritans often received and welcomed those who had been excommunicated by Judaism for any number of reasons. And furthermore, as we learn from reading John chapter 4, in Jesus' dealings with a Samaritan woman, the woman was surprised that Jesus would even speak to her. She knew that Jews on a personal level had no dealings with Samaritans. Or consider how the religious leaders slandered Jesus found in John 8, 48. It says the Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? See, for Jews to call someone a Samaritan was considered a great insult. And so you have to imagine how difficult the task was to be. You know, it's one thing to take the gospel of Jesus from the city of Jerusalem and begin to establish Jesus-worshipping communities all throughout the towns of Judea. You know, there would have been no social barriers to cross to get it done, but to take the gospel to Samaria. I mean, how do Jews do that? I don't think one of the 12 apostles had even the slightest idea as to how to make that happen. But Jesus wasn't done by saying that the gospel needed to be taken beyond the borders of Israel into the land of the Samaritans. He carried right on. From Samaria, he said, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. See, one of the tragedies that happened, that is, in terms of global gospel proclamation, was the formation of Christendom. See, there was a time when the good news of Jesus became identified with the Roman Empire and then... To extend the matter further, it became identified with Europe and the idea that there were Christian nations that would face off with Islam in the East. Politics and the Christian faith became joined in an unholy union. And when that happened, missionaries were not being sent out. Those in other nations were not viewed through the eyes of the love of Jesus, were rather through the eyes of an intense competition of lands with national religions. And throughout the Middle Ages, because of this union, which led to ever-increasing corruption inside the church, and the seizing of ever more power, and the money that was involved in this unholy union, I mean, too much was at stake to let that go. And through this arrangement, the world was viewed between Christians and non-Christian lands, and armies were sent instead of missionaries, and the Christian faith contracted through that arrangement. If you're to learn from the book of Acts, we're going to have to learn that the gospel of Jesus is greater than all the prejudices we cherish. We're going to have to see Jesus from his perspective. Jesus was not concerned with preserving a nation. He was interested in reaching every ethnic group on earth. Reading Acts will cause us to ask questions. Which for you is greater, your nation or Jesus? Or will you say, my nation and my culture are my way of life? To think that the gospel went from Judea into Samaria is a remarkable story, but to go beyond Samaria into the Greco-Roman world is amazing. And then to think that Acts ends up with the apostle Paul in prison, not railing against the injustice of Rome, and the many abuses that were a part of the Roman Empire, but rather, Paul saw prison and his awaiting trial as an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with ever more people, even in the great city of Rome. That was earth-shattering. And furthermore, by the time we get to the end of Acts, Paul is still dreaming of taking the gospel further, all the way to Spain. But of course, Spain isn't the ends of the earth as Jesus had commanded Others were carrying the gospel into North Africa, and still others, Thomas, was taking it all the way to India. Two things drove these men forward. First, they were doing it in obedience to Christ, and second, they were doing it out of love for the lost among the many people groups of the world. When we read Acts 6 to 12, we need to come to terms with how we feel about those two things, obedience to Christ and compassion for the lost.
0: We want to extend thanks to all those who take the time to encourage us. Here's a special note we just received. As I was listening, my heart was filled with much excitement, joy, peace, and encouragement. Thank you for teaching us the Word of God. We're so thankful to hear responses like this from people all over Canada. And we're thankful for those who give financially so that Back to the Bible Canada can continue to impact lives across this nation and beyond. You're joined by thousands who have a commitment to the importance of teaching God's Word. Your gifts and your prayers are critical. So please continue to support this program so that others would grow closer in their walk with Jesus every day. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: If you didn't know anything about the sovereignty of God, you would conclude that what caused the church to grow beyond Jerusalem into Samaria, and then, you know, into the city of Joppa and Caesarea, where the Romans had their military strongholds, I mean, what caused the gospel to penetrate into those areas, well, it might look just like dumb luck. For surely, as we read Acts, we won't find a strategy meeting. I mean, the apostles didn't consult with the best sociologists of the day. They didn't do an analysis about the cultural values of Samaritans and then of Romans and begin to strategize how to adapt the gospel to that culture. And I'm not saying that the good work of many missiologists is of no avail. It's important to understand the people we're trying to reach. But in the early days of the development of the Jerusalem church, many Jews were quite familiar with Samaritans as well as Romans, especially with the military variety. See, what happens in Acts is not dumb luck, but the sovereign hand of God who's determined that his people should be helped to fulfill their mission. My hope is as we track the events that forced the church out of Jerusalem and into their global mission, that the retelling of these events would impact us, first with gratefulness. See if these events hadn't occurred, we wouldn't have heard the gospel. But second, it should impact us with a new set of eyes to consider what the sovereign God is doing today. What events that are larger than ourselves are forcing the church of Jesus Christ to again look beyond herself and see the mission field that God has prepared for us? What is the sovereign God causing to occur so that we might seize upon that for the sake of the gospel? And with that in mind, let's do a brief survey of the things that we're going to find in our study of Acts 6-12. to The drama starts innocently enough. Very early on, the church had begun a program of ministering to the poor widows among them. It tells us that the matter of caring for the poor was, from the very beginning, a cause for great concern in the church. But there were problems, and those problems came between two competing people groups. We're going to discuss that later, but we're going to see that the problem fell along racial lines. Widows who were Greek-speaking were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. And so the apostles give direction. Men are to be chosen to oversee the distribution of food. And rather than just picking anyone, the matter was given a great deal of consideration. Only men who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom were to be chosen. And the men chosen were also men who were deeply concerned with reaching out to the lost in Jerusalem. See, in the early church, there wasn't you know the kind of divide we see today. I mean, it's often the case that those concerned for the poor... And those concerned for evangelism were actually in two different groups. It wasn't like that in the early church. And so one of the leaders of the distribution of food among the poor widows was also doing a very effective job in preaching the gospel, so much so that the enemies of the gospel murdered him. Acts chapter 7 records the story of the first Christian martyr. His name was Stephen. You know, following his martyrdom, a great persecution broke out against the church among those who strongly advocated persecuting the church out of existence was a Jewish intellectual named Saul. And we should recognize that man, for later he becomes known as Paul, who is one of the greatest missionaries to the Gentiles in the long history of the church. And we'll learn a lesson of the grace of God and of holding out grace and hope even for the enemies of the cross. But back to the persecution. Acts 8 tells us that those believers who were persecuted were forced out of Jerusalem, and wherever they went, they preached the good news of Jesus. And suddenly, the gospel is heard outside of Jerusalem. And then we hear for the very first time an evangelist named Philip who went to Samaria and proclaimed Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. Incredibly, a great many believed, and of course, it was not without difficulty, as we read about a man named Simon, who's a false convert. We'll come to that. But that's how the gospel got to Samaria. Not because of a master plan, but because of a political situation in which the church was forced out of Jerusalem. And that's how Jesus' command to make disciples of the Samaritans came into being. And then speaking about persecution, we come to Acts chapter 9, where we again encounter Saul, the persecutor of the church. What will follow is his conversion story, which is fascinating enough, but what's often missed by the Bible reader is where that conversion occurred. Saul was on his way to Damascus to arrest believers there. You might want to Google Damascus and see it's in Syria it would appear that the persecution in Jerusalem not only drove believers to Samaria, but some went as far as Syria. Now, a little study, we're gonna find out that it was not quite as remarkable as it might seem. There were a great many Jewish communities in Damascus in those days, and so it wasn't a fantastic idea that Jewish Christians would have fled there. And of course, as we've already learned, they're preaching the gospel wherever they go. Now, here's the question. Had that Jewish Syrian church reached outside of their Jewish community? Well, Acts doesn't say, but by the time we get to Acts 13, we won't study that chapter in this series. Remember, we're only going as far as chapter 12, but in chapter 13, we find a Christian church in Antioch, which is a great deal north of Damascus, still in Syria. And what's fascinating about the church in Antioch is that it was a thoroughly international church. That's where Saul wants the persecutor Once the man fanatically anti-Gentile becomes a part of an international church and there is commission to reach out to the nations. It's a fascinating story, but I'm getting ahead of myself. That part of the story was yet to come, but the thing that I want us to remember is how the Church of Jesus actually got to that place and became a global phenomenon. Until Acts chapter 10, the breakthrough into what would become the global mission had not yet taken root. Yet the idea was there from Jesus, and no doubt the hope was there that eventually they'd do that, but it was a foggy vision. And even though the initial persecution in Jerusalem had opened the door for global evangelism, and even though the gospel had gone to Samaria and to the Jewish communities in Syria, the actual Gentile mission would have remained impossible except for one exceptional moment. It's recorded in Acts chapter 10. It all begins in the city of Caesarea, and for those of us who don't live there, it just sounds like the name of another city, until you think about it. Caesarea is a city in Israel. It's located right on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea, and it was originally built by Herod the Great. Yeah, that's the same Herod who killed the boys in Bethlehem. Herod was not only an exceptionally cruel man, he was also a brilliant politician and an incredible builder. He built Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar to please his master and overlord. It had an amazing harbor from which everything from goods to military troops could move in and out of Israel. It was the headquarters of the Roman troops. And it's right there in Israel that Roman centurion, a man named Cornelius, had a vision from God. Living in Israel had changed Cornelius' life. He became a God-fearer. He was a Gentile who believed and loved the God of Israel. One day this man was praying, and an angel came to him in a message. Go send some people to nearby Joppa. Go to the home of a man named Simon the Tanner. Ask for a man named Peter, have him come to your house. In the meantime, not far from Caesarea, there's Peter in prayer. Peter sees a vision of unclean animals, the kind that no self-respecting Jew would ever eat, never mind be around. He hears a voice from heaven saying, rise Peter, kill and eat. Peter's horrified, he adamantly refuses. And he's shaken by the experience and he wonders what such a vision means until men arrive from the home of Cornelius. The voice from heaven tells Peter he must not hesitate even for a moment. He's got to go with these men, and for the first time in his life, he's got to enter the home of an unclean Gentile. And the implications of that one moment in here, I don't mean the implications just for Peter and Cornelius. I mean the implications of that one moment for the global church of Jesus Christ can't be overemphasized not only for Peter, but for the entire Jewish Christian church. They had come at the brink of a revolution, a revolution that was to shake the church to its foundations. God was making the Gentiles a part of one family together with Jewish believers. The lesson of getting beyond Jerusalem is still a lesson for the church today. Just like Peter, we need to learn this lesson over and over again. For whenever the church forgets her mission— Whenever the church is content to only minister to people just like ourselves, whenever we aren't willing to cross racial and cultural barriers, whenever we don't do that, we betray a rebellion against the Great Commission. God expects His church to be international. He expects us to lay aside our own culture and take the gospel to every culture on earth. And if you struggle with that, welcome to Acts 6-12, to the story of getting beyond Jerusalem and embracing every ethnic group under heaven.
0: John, I think it goes without saying that Canada, in fact, North America, is increasingly a multicultural country. Are we doing enough to reach these new people groups with the gospel?
1: Yeah, I think The answer is no, we are not. You know, many of us are so unaware of how many people, when coming to this nation, are very interested in the Christian faith. Some have come from nations where the Christian faith is restricted, and so there is a natural curiosity. I mean, some come from nations in which you know Christians have been spoken against, but even that, a loving attitude, just sharing our faith openly. You know, some of us who grew up in this country are not aware that in many cultures around the world, sharing one's faith and talk about God is as natural as talking about the weather. I mean, what an opportunity we've had. So I'm gonna say you know, if you know someone who's a new immigrant to this country, utilize the opportunity, get to know them, share immediately that you're a believer, and say, you know, I'd love to talk to you about my own faith. Tell me about what you hold to be true. Let's have a conversation. See what God does.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series Beyond Jerusalem right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Want to hear answers to some of the most requested questions Back to the Bible Canada receives from our listeners? Well, this May, Back to the Bible Canada will be airing a special four-episode video series called Ask Dr. John, responding to the questions on your heart and mind, questions about salvation, the church, finding strength in difficult days, and so much more. And you can take the opportunity to participate by sending your questions to info at backtothebible.ca or just giving us a call at 1-800-663-2425. You can access this upcoming series on Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel or online at backtothebible.ca. And to ensure you never miss a video episode from Dr. John, subscribe to Back to the Bible Canada's YouTube channel. For more information or to support the ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.